0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Professor Jamie Bronstein. Uh, Dr. Jamie Bronstein is a professor of US and British history at New Mexico State University. Today, she'll be talking to us about a great book she published with Stanford University Press. The book is called Happiness of the British Working Class. Uh, Jamie, uh, welcome to New Books Network.
1: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Uh, before we start talking about the book, uh, can you please briefly introduce yourself and talk about your field of expertise?
1: Sure. I have um, been a professor of U.S. and British history at New Mexico State University since 1996. I got my uh, Ph.D. in British and U.S. history from Stanford University in 1996. And in the time period between being hired and now, I have written six books. Uh, Five of them are on British history, and one uh, was on the history of inequality in the United States from the colonial period to uh, the present. So um, those are my main fields of expertise 19th century Britain and um, comparative or transatlantic history, um, including such topics as working people and disenfranchised people. Um, So that's pretty much it.
0: Uh, So I, I guess sort of I can see now why you decided to partly write this book about the British working class but uh, the idea of happiness and the british working class that um, i must say that this really attracted my attention when i first saw the book on stanford university website because that's happiness is not something based on you know the literature we have studied i studied literature myself the novels and the, you know the series or movies that uh, that is produced happiness is not usually the feeling that people might associate with the british working class i guess what comes to their mind is that kind of uh, dickensian vision of London or, 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 or British society. So uh, can you tell us uh, the idea of the book, how the idea of the book came to you and why you decided to write the book? And also maybe we can briefly introduce the idea of this new discipline, the history of emotions. That's something that uh, recently a lot of books have been written about. What is uh, the history of emotions and why you decided to write about this particular emotion, happiness, and the British working class?
1: Um, well, I'll start at the beginning of why it is that I decided to write the book. I have been in my spare time because we get a free class as part of our benefits at New Mexico State. I've been taking a lot of philosophy classes just for fun and also because I think it you know, helps me with my argumentation. I'd never taken philosophy as an undergrad. And a colleague of mine was teaching a class called Should We Want to Be Happy? And in that class, I learned all about the literature about substantive well-being and hedonism uh, and uh, whole life satisfaction. And at the end of that course, we actually had this thing called the Socrates booth where we all dressed in togas and stood out in front of the student center and asked people what happiness meant to them. And at the end of that experience, I thought maybe there is a book there that somehow brings together this idea of substantive well-being with uh, what I know about working class history. My thought upon embarking on the research was I had no idea what I was going to find. I had read a lot in the so-called standard of living debate that goes back to the 1960s and 1970s about whether primarily industrialization was in the short term negative um, to working people, whether it was positive in terms of its impact. And so I was more on the pessimist side of that standard of living debate. So I thought, oh, I'm not gonna find a lot of happiness in the working class autobiographies that I'm looking at. But it turned out that I was wrong about that, um, as I'll tell you more about ultimately There's a variety of things that people wrote about, but people were happy about certain states of affairs and looking back on their lives, you know, many people had positive stories to tell. This is not at all any, uh, everybody, but a lot lot of people. In terms of the history of emotions, yeah, this is a field that really um, started in the I would say the 1960s and 1970s, and then picked up speed. The Stearns in the United States and uh, William Reddy, and then Barbara Rosenwine and others started writing about emotions. And there are several different ways in which people envision the field. Uh, William Reddy, who wrote The Navigation of Feeling, was known for Envisioning something called an emotional regime. So, the supposition that in any given time period, there were certain emotional display rules and certain emotional norms that were followed. And yet, at the same time, people could uh, have spaces where they would have more liberty to emote in ways that were different. And, you know, he wrote basically about the French Revolution. In contrast, some other historians have talked about. Uh, There being like emotional cultures within any given society, because people learn what emotions are, or they put an intellectual tag on what they are somatically feeling due to the way in which other people around them have kind of foregrounded the explanation for how they're feeling. So you could have like a really negative feeling, a strong negative feeling, and it could be in one context, anger, humiliation, sadness, you know, confusion. And so um, people like Barbara Rosenwein write about how there are these shared cultures of emotional expression and emotional regulation. And that was more of the direction that I was going in when I started to read the autobiographies.
0: And uh, uh, another a really fascinating part part of the book for me was the sources you used i never thought that the british working class had so many i mean so many of them had written autobiographies about themselves uh, again partly it's because of my m- misconception maybe of the uh, of the working class of the time but <clears throat> can you talk about these sources a little bit more was it common for the working class to have autobiographies
1: Um, I was able to track down and read uh, about 340, a little bit over 340 uh, autobiographies or firsthand narratives written by British working people who were born before 1870. I needed to come up with a cutoff date and that seemed like as good Mm -hmm. of a cutoff date as any. And there's such a wide variety of working class autobiographies Some of them were written when people had moved out of the working class and become uh, professors or uh, members of parliament or, you know, just important cultural figures. But it started off as members of the working class. And other people wrote autobiographies because they were impoverished and they were trying to um, sell the autobiographies in order to gain a few um, pence in order to support themselves, or other people wrote autobiographies because they were strong religious believers and felt a duty to convert other people. Um, so there are, I would say, there are definitely more than 340 autobiographies. There is a wonderful bibliography of working class autobiography that was published in the early 1980s. It is several volumes long and I wasn't able to find anywhere near uh, all of the autobiographies even in the time period that I was looking for because many of them only exist as single copies somewhere. But uh, there are way more than one might expect.
0: But still 300 is quite a large number that you have used for your uh, for, for your uh, research project for this book. Um, so another question that I have is the how was the idea of happiness, joy, or content described in these autobiographies? I know it's a broad question, but broadly speaking, what was the main source of joy or the, the way they defined it? Was it financial or non-financial aspects to this?
1: I was really surprised at the extent to which there was a non-materialistic description of happiness or contentment that arose out of the sources. Like I went in with no um, preconceptions about what it was that I was going to find, because as I said, I am kind of a pessimist on the standard of living debate. And I thought, oh, happiness might not even be the value that people are able to maximize during the Industrial Revolution. But in fact, I started to read, and as I read more and more, themes came to the surface. So for example, um, I have a chapter that talks about childhood and the way in which almost all of the working people who wrote about happiness in their autobiographies uh, wrote about their childhoods and the Comfort of being taken care of, and the um, the fellowship of having family and friends and extended relations uh, with them. The joy of play, the um, favorite foods that they liked, and a lot of times the happiness of childhood would be juxtaposed within the autobiographies with something that happened that took away the freedom of childhood whether it was the first time that they needed to go off to work and earn a wage for the family, or whether it was some terrible thing that had happened, you know, the death of a parent or um, seeing some kind of terrible disaster. Uh, Later in life, the responsibilities of adulthood made childhood seem like a really joyous time. So uh, that was one of the uh, themes that emerged. Another theme that emerged, shockingly enough, was that people took joy in their work. Now, whether this was the work that they were paid to do or whether it was work that they did as an avocation or in their spare time, or in order to kind of round out their family diet, um, many working people found contentment in terms of learning skills, um, being able to show their mastery of processes, seeing the final product of what they produced, um, even having good relationships with coworkers at a time when friendship per se was not something that a lot of working people had time for. Um, these close on-the-job relationships or even a fun workplace could make the difference in somebody's life in a way that would cause them to write about that being the source of their happiness. So those were two of the themes that emerged. Um did you want me to talk about the other ones?
0: Uh yeah, there I had several questions. Yeah, it's, it's it would be great if we could talk about maybe the intellectual or creative aesthetics or aesthetic you know sources of happiness and I wanted to ask you also about familiar activities You, you mentioned taking care of a child would be great if you could talk about these different sources or maybe the major themes in those autobiographies that you analyzed
1: yeah sure um people wrote about their close relationships including their families that they grew up in their siblings um the Pain of parting, which often had to happen as people went around the countryside looking for jobs or as part of the family might migrate to one of the colonial spaces of the British Empire, the joy of family reunion, which was a really, really common, like ubiquitous description in many of these autobiographies. Uh, falling in love, and finding good things about your life partner. You know, these were also themes that popped up in the autobiographies quite a bit. And people talk about, you know, the discovery of romantic uh, relationships. There is some of that, but also just for people who had been married a long time, a real appreciation for the kinds of contributions that somebody could bring to the household. It's mostly men who are writing these autobiographies. The wives are described as being great mothers, great housekeepers, really able to stretch a budget, you know, being fun loving in ways that brought contentment to the home. Um, In terms of the sort of intellectual or aesthetic pleasures, I knew from studying working class radicalism that lots of people were very, uh, a spark was lit under them by reading. That the extent to which any one person would get a good education was really varied before the introduction of widespread, you know, government required public education in Britain starting in 1870. And before that, You know, people learned on their own or they learned in a in a Sunday school and they read voraciously. And many of the autobiographers loved reading. And it kind of didn't matter what they read. They read like totally unsystematically. But having books to read kind of expanded the mind and made people happy. People also loved writing. Obviously, with very few exceptions, the autobiographer's wrote their autobiographies, and they took a lot of joy in becoming published. Many of them wrote poems and were very proud of their poetic output. There were others who studied things like music, or even became kind of amateur researchers in fields like botany or phrenology. So um, the autodidact, the joy of learning things um really comes through in i would say a majority of the autobiographies and and a lot of them mention the same books
0: uh that uh, sorry go on i thought
1: i i will also say you know the other thing the other parts that i didn't uh talk about yet the environment i was kind of not expecting working class people to be such avid environmentalists I thought that since this is a time period when people are moving in large numbers from the country to the city, that intellectually speaking, people are making the trade-off between, okay, I know I need to go to the city and it might be a little bit less aesthetically pleasing, but that's where I can earn a wage and support myself. But people apparently loved to walk went out in nature quite a bit enjoyed the quiet, enjoyed the solitude. Um, I really liked reading about how the countryside became a source of uh, non-market goods. So people would fish, they would um, pick berries, they'd gather things, they would make toys out of the little bits and pieces that they found in the outdoors. So... Um, even though there were some people who worked outside and who didn't love being outside because it was uncomfortable many many people who worked inside um, looked to nature as a source of comfort and happiness
0: Uh, you've raised a number of really interesting points and uh, one thing that came to my mind was uh, when you were talking about the reading habits of the British working class was that wonderful book by Jonathan Rose, The Intellectual Life of the British Working Class, which you have cited in your book as well. And uh, a question just popped up in my mind when you were talking about these autobiographies, and you said that the writers were mainly men, and we don't really have a lot of autobiographies from women. I'm, I'm guessing part of the reason is might be that it's uh, still educational institutions where closed or women didn't really have access to those uh educational institutions or was it was there another reason to it as well if you know i
1: think when you look at what was driving people to write autobiographies the people who felt like they had a life that that somebody else would be interested in reading about were mostly men um there is also a geographical bias towards There's more autobiographies sort of per capita from Scotland, where the primary education uh, system was a lot better. There are almost none from Ireland, and I don't think I saw any from Wales uh, because of language factors. Um, But in terms of the women, uh, they tended to write about their lives if there was something really, really different about them. So um, there are a couple Mm. from... Women who had really difficult lives, who were working together with sort of um, s- scribes or ghost writers who were helping them tell their stories. There were women who were very religious, who were writing about their lives as a form of witness or testimony, part of their religion. I would say, for the most part, though, women didn't have time to sit and write about themselves. They might not have the educational background. They certainly, on average, didn't have the confidence that people wanted to read what they had to say. Um, so I think all of these things together played a role. Um, mm. There are some women poets whose work, you know, because I was looking at autobiographies, I didn't look at, but um, for people to write autobiographies, required. A kind of different attitude towards the material.
0: Hmm. And uh, when when you were analyzing the themes in these autobiographies, did you kind of notice a difference in what they what constitutes happiness for them in terms of uh, lower income or higher income working class people?
1: I didn't find anybody or almost anybody who was trying to sort of keep up with the Joneses. One of the things that people write about in happiness studies contemporarily, like today, is something called the hedonic treadmill, the idea that people in developed nations who get to a certain level of income really don't have an increase in happiness as their income rises because they're on a hedonic treadmill. They feel like, okay, now that I can afford X thing, that is a signifier of being upper middle class or is a signifier of being very comfortable. I have to get that thing. I have to put my kids in private school. You know, I have to move into a bigger house, whatever. The hedonic treadmill really did not appear in the autobiographies that I was reading. People found happiness in things that didn't tend to cost a lot because they didn't have unreasonable expectations about upward mobility that that expectation didn't drive them to be unhappy. I've seen some of this in other literature, like in some of the very early encounters between indigenous people of the Americas and European colonizers. You know, there's language in which the indigenous people say, we have it better than the uh, than the Europeans do because we don't we don't want after things we are satisfied with what we have you know we don't have unreasonable expectations we're not building a house that is too big to heat this sort of mm-hmm. thing so I don't want to romanticize poverty but I will say that not having a lot of opportunities for comparison or, living in neighborhoods in which people were kind of on a par with their uh, surroundings made people not materialistic in the same way as long as they could afford to eat and had housing and to you know be safe basically
0: mm-hmm. um, well, so let me ask you another part of it so, Well, you just mentioned poverty, and I'm interested to know if in those autobiographies, apart from happiness, what were the things that maybe were not so joyful to them? Did they talk about the difficulties in their lives, sickness, poverty, sort of grim aspects of life as well?
1: Um, Yeah, there is a whole genre, I would say, of autobiographies that are notable for the absence of happiness, So when people were ill, or when they, you know, there were some people who uh, in the 19th century were disabled on the job, and there didn't tend to be any kind of social safety net for people other than what their colleagues or, you know, co-workers were able to provide. There wasn't any kind of um, government assistance, and very often the Uh, prognosis was really grim. And so you get these autobiographies that were written as a fundraising tool. Mm. And those kinds of autobiographies exist, which are mostly about, you know, I'm in pain and this is the story of my life. There are other autobiographies where people were living so hand to mouth that they, John Rawls talks about people not having the ability to achieve dignity because they're lacking, you know, recognition and they're lacking safety and they're lacking um, food and they're lacking clothing. And there were people like this, their life stories make it into the archive as well. Although sometimes they are um, not written by the people themselves. And so there's that kind of autobiography in which happiness is absent and it Just in a way by throwing into relief um, what the absence of happiness looked like, the disconnection, the lack of family support, the lack of basic health, you know, it it throws into relief what happiness was because the shadow, you know, shows what um, the non-shadow is, you know, the empty space shows what the sculpture is
0: mm-hmm. uh let me go back to the environmental aspect of happiness you mentioned uh you, you talked about it a bit uh, a few minutes earlier is how can we can we constitute that as environmental and the reason i'm asking because i did my phd dissertation on ecofeminism so it was a environmental humanities in the 18th and 19th century literature, sometimes we really had to kind of push more arguments to be able (laughs) to talk about environmental aspects of literature in the 18th and 19th century. So I'm wondering if there was a conscious environmental, let's say, mindset or simply maybe, you know, uh, gardening or seeking solace and comfort in nature can be constituted as Um, environmental aspects of those autobiographies
1: yeah I think I have not like theorized it past nature and a love of nature and a desire for nature kind of constitute environmentalism for people who in their spare time will do everything that they can to get out into nature it is not the case that there is among the working people a large cohort, you know, demanding that industrial Mm. or urban uh, development stop, but people do gravitate to beautiful views, to wild places, to uh, quiet, to streams and waters and places where you can find um, free food, you know, like trees, flowers, that sort of bounty. And I've considered that to be environmentalism. um, But you are correct that, you know, it's not like they were the Sierra Club or that they were, you know, trying to stop progress or industrial progress in order to maintain things as they were. I don't think I don't think people had that power, Mm. at least not individually in this time period. But they certainly did take a lot of joy from yeah. the world
0: around yeah. nature was a very important I guess aspect of life British countryside it, it features a lot in their fiction as well mm-hmm. uh, and and this final question I have is about the, the general depiction of happiness in those autobiographies as an emotion so was it some sort of a the way they described it was it absolute joy or happiness or was it some sort of a, maybe a, a, a proportionate to other emotions or happiness being dispositional? How was it in general depicted in their work?
1: Well, there are some people who you can tell are just dispositionally happy people. I felt like every time I finished reading an autobiography that I had met a new person, because when you read somebody's prose for a couple hundred pages, and they're talking about themselves, and often they're writing late in life, and you know, looking back over the whole course of their lives, and making some kind of summative assessment of how happy they have been on the whole or how contented they have been on the whole, you can tell who the like super happy people are. It just kind of comes out of the, um, comes out of the pros. But, uh, for the most part, what I guess I'm looking at is, um, whole life satisfaction because Mm -hmm. these are people who are going back and looking at, their whole lives rather than momentary hedonism. People talked about happiness more than they talked about other emotions. I pulled some of those other emotions out and put them into a separate chapter. People talked about sadness, fear, anger. But in general, they wanted to, it seemed like, talk about the happy times. And so there was more of that discussion of happiness and it's more a kind of whole life satisfaction than a a momentary sort of hedonism. The people who did talk about hedonism tended to be those making a religious argument against it. So they felt a lot of regret about their sowing their wild oats or whatever before they became converted uh, to Methodism. So that sort of thing.
0: Uh Uh, And I forgot to ask a question about the role of religion or religious institution in in constituting happiness. You did mention um, a bit about it. Can you talk about this part?
1: I have a whole chapter called The Way of Duty. And one of the things that I wondered about when I was researching was, is there some other value that's being maximized by, by some of these working class autobiographers other than happiness? And I found that for both people for whom religion was kind of the major thread in their lives and people who were social reformers of some kind, um, duty rather than happiness per se was the driving factor, at least in their autobiography. So sometimes people, let's say Chartists, that's the group of people that I wrote about in my first book. And then again, in my third book, um, Chartists were very attached to the idea of the uplift of all mankind but in the short run that might mean that they were jailed that their families suffered from lack of food but they kept at least in their autobiographies referencing this is my social duty similarly people who were religious and felt like it was their duty to convert people to um you know preach to advocate for temperance, they also sometimes really sacrifice themselves in order to put forward their religious message. But you could tell that they were getting a kind of satisfaction from doing their social duty. One of the interesting things about um, happiness that a colleague, the same colleague who was teaching the should we be happy class, um, noticed in his own research, is that pro social behavior, that is, doing good deeds for other people, being charitable, visiting the sick, helping people, tends to make people feel good about themselves, not necessarily in a hedonic sort of a way, but just in a, you know, affirming the self sort of a way. And I was. Uh, interested to see a lot of autobiographers talk about how much joy or happiness or contentment they receive from being able to help other people when they ultimately could help other people. And of course, lots of the uh, more unfortunate autobiographers described being helped by people of their same social class.
0: As a final question, is there any other project or books you're currently working on?
1: Um, Yeah, uh, to just make a huge screeching turn, I am working on a book right now, which is on the uh, construction of and sort of colonialism of mental health in New Mexico in the territorial and early statehood period. So that's like 1880s to the 1930s. Um, I have a kind of sideline in writing New Mexico history. Most of the articles that I've written have been about New Mexico history because this is where the archives are. And it's easier for me to travel to northern New Mexico than it is for me to get on a plane and go to Britain. So I'm writing about the way in which ideas of insanity and mental health and treatments of the mentally ill uh, we're kind of negotiated among the various groups in New Mexico that is, um, Anglo Americans, Hispanos, and indigenous people in that period that I mentioned.
0: That sounds like a fascinating project. And uh, when do you expect the book to be released?
1: Um, that new one, I would say I'm about a third of the way through writing it. So mm. it'll be a while. You know, this book, The Happiness of the British Working Class, I started it in 2010. It came out in 2023, (laughs) but I also wrote another book in the middle of writing this one, (laughs) um, which was um, my book about American inequality. So it's kind of hard to say like exactly how long it took me, but it was not a short project. (laughs) Mm.
0: Well, I hope to be able to talk to you about your new book soon on New Books Network. Thank you very, very much, Professor Jamie Brunstone. Really enjoyed this conversation and I strongly recommend this book to our listeners. It gives you a complete uh, picture of life of the British working class.